Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 254th episode Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Eliza DePardo. Eliza is the founder of her eponymous advisory consulting firm with a particular focus on working with mid to large size independent advisory firms with several million dollars of revenue. What's unique about Eliza, though, is the unique focus she takes on the human capital issues that arise as advisory firms try to scale up, recognizing that a financial advice business is first and foremost a service business which means attracting, retaining, and developing the firm's people is the biggest key to its long-term success. In this episode, we talk in depth about the unique challenges that advisory firm founders face as they grow and scale their advice businesses, including how the ability to attract and serve clients is so fundamental to growing the first million of revenue, but takes a back seat by three million of revenue and all the growth thereafter. Why it's the advisors who are most effective at moving away from the client-facing work to develop their team management skills instead that tend to have the most success at scaling their firms. And why even as advisory firm founders take on a greater focus in management as they grow, the long-term key to scaling is about getting comfortable with the scariest hires of all, dedicated management, including a COO and eventually a CEO that isn't the founder, to create the infrastructure necessary to grow the firm to the next level. We also talk about some of the key business productivity metrics that advisory firm owners should monitor as they grow, including their average revenue per advisor, which across all firms averages about $500,000 per revenue-generating professional, their average revenue per staff, which leads advisory firms to hire a new team member on average every $250,000 of revenue, and how one of the biggest keys to scaling up is about shifting the ratio of non-revenue-producing to revenue-producing team members from a one-to-one ratio when the firm is small to a two-to-one ratio as it approaches a billion dollars of assets under management. And be certain to listen to the end, where Eliza shares her own 15-year journey through the advisory business and building her career as a practice management consultant. The parallels between the challenges in the consulting business and the advisory business when you lose out on a big prospect, and why you have to learn not to take those misses personally, and why most advisory firms need to learn to hire sooner, but not necessarily faster. Because no matter how much you need the next hire, it's crucial to ensure you find someone who will represent the firm well to the end clients it serves. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Eliza DePardo. Welcome, Eliza DePardo, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me along. I'm really excited for the discussion today and and having a conversation of... I think that's just really going to get into what what happens when you actually try to make an advisory firm a lot bigger than just yourself, and you try to start scaling it beyond you. We did a a study late last year, kind of shared it out to the advisor world earlier this year, looking at the well-being of advisors, right? A well-being is sort of a broad-based concept of, of just like, how do we feel, you know, like day-to-day living our lives? How do, how do we feel about our satisfaction with our life and our worth? And like, do we have more positive feelings than negative feelings in the day? It's all the things that can describe our, our well-being. And, and so we had done this study looking at the well-being of advisors. And one of the most striking results that came from it was that if you just graph kind of the, the, the revenue of an advisor against their well-being, 
we got this shape that looked like an upside down U, where as advisory firms start growing, getting more revenue, just our well-being improves, we feel better and better, because right? it's, it's, it's hard at the beginning when there's not much clients and not much revenue, and it's very stressful, and you got bills to pay and put food on your table, and like once it starts growing, you feel a lot better. You get to a certain point where you can be making some really good money in the, in the industry with a very comfortable base of clients. We found that that peaked somewhere in the range of about one to one and a half million dollars of revenue. And then there was this interesting thing that cropped up in our research where as revenue got higher from there, well-being started going down again. The, the well-being of advisors with two million of revenue on average was materially lower than those that were only at one and a one and a half. And then as they got above two million of revenue, it got lower. As they got above three and a half million of revenue, which was kind of the top bracket that we'd measured, it was the lowest, like the lowest well-being mm. of advisors that we measured anywhere were those that managed more than three and a half yeah. million dollars of revenue. It was yeah. even worse than the advisors who were just starting and had no revenue yet for anybody who knows <laughs> how stressful that was when you're getting started right. from scratch. And so, and it just struck me, I guess, having lived this journey myself of, of what happens when you, when you grow and scale a business, there is a phenomenon that somewhere in that range, right around $2 million of revenue, give or take a little, is usually where firms get so many team members. At that point, you're getting somewhere around seven to 10 team members. And you get to the point where you just can't manage them all because there's just too many, especially when you got 100 plus clients to manage as well. And you have to start actually like creating management layers, creating an organizational structure and the business starts to move from a point where your primary challenge are managing clients to where your primary challenge is managing people and teams and right. human capital. And just was so struck that at the end of the day, I feel like this was the, the, the empirical evidence that you know, we're really good at managing clients. And this business gets really hard when suddenly the primary focus is managing the humans in the business, not the humans you're serving with the business. Yeah. I, I think that's incredibly interesting research, but I, I can't say that I'm surprised by the <laughs> results. Having, you know, focused in human capital management for so many years as a consultant, I do think that you know, once you start to move away from perhaps the work that you love the most, which is for most advisors, why they got into the business, which is sitting in front of clients and having great conversations and delivering advice and helping your clients. Once you start to move away from that and you end up having a very high percentage of your time taken up by people-related issues, then the fun can absolutely come out of the job if that's, if that's not something that you love doing. But I have to say that if I look back over the last 15 to 20 years of consulting, when I think of the firms that I've worked with, which have really created, you know, significant levels of scale, where the partners are still very enthusiastic about what they do in the business, it's not always the case, but those who are really enthusiastic, they tend to be those advisors that over the course of time have really developed themselves some very deep human capital management capabilities. And they also have a very natural inclination for wanting to work with people, take care of team members, develop team members, and, and really support their growth. And, and they, they hold that kind of central to what they do in the firm. So I do think there's something very much in it. If you love that work, 
I think you'll continue to flourish and, and feel that energy and that satisfaction around the work that you're doing. But if you really don't like it, you're going to obviously have to bring in dedicated management, which is a very necessary step in any firm's evolution. But it can also bring about more challenges, right? It's That is never an easy decision to make. It's a necessary decision. It's never easy. And if if you are lucky enough to recruit the right people, you can, you know, hand over a great deal of responsibility. But if you don't, you know, there can be obviously some ongoing challenges for a firm. I'm struck by the the way that you frame that, that there's just this transition moment I find where where just suddenly the, the outcome of the business is not actually driven by well, by how well you're serving clients, or at least not by it's not driven by how how well you like Personally, you individual yeah. advisor, founder, right. owner. It's like it's no longer driven about how well you manage clients. It's driven by how well you can take your approach, your views, your philosophy around how clients should be managed and turn it into a system that other advisors can do, that other advisors can be trained in, that other advisors can execute, and that you can then find and hire and develop the talent to do that and to and to implement and execute on your system. And if you if you have trouble kind of visualizing or thinking about that that systematizing shift, then it just it it gets hard. We end up hiring advisors who don't do what we do, who don't do it the way we do it, who don't necessarily live up to the the style or the philosophy of whatever it is because we didn't teach them ours so they came with theirs and and may not be the same as ours. And then the business can get frustrating or it gets harder to grow or you end up letting every advisor do their own thing, but then they basically do their own thing for their own clients with their own book, which basically means it's their own mini business. And at some point they decide they don't necessarily need you around and they go across the street and bring their clients with them because why wouldn't they at that point? And just the the, the hard stuff starts kicking in that I, I think showed up for us in in lower well-being scores for advisors that have have gotten to the point where they've got these multi-million revenue firms and they're struggling with or possibly just just mired in some of these challenges. Yeah, and I don't think that for the most part when you're founding a firm, an advisory firm and growing it in the early years, I I don't think that many advisors think about what is their ultimate end game in the business. That is what is the role that they really want to fulfill within the firm? Is it to continue to always see clients or is it to evolve into something else within the firm to be able to progress towards full-time CEO? And maybe for some of them, that's not really something that's appealing at all. Some of them love the investment management work and prefer perhaps to maybe move in that direction over the course of time. But I think without that vision, it becomes really challenging because as you grow, you're going to be forced in a certain direction, right? You're not going to just be able to continue to sit in front of the clients that you love to see and and not focus on all of the other areas of the business that require attention. So I think going into it, you've got to know what you're in for and that with scale, your role will change, but you can certainly create the path for yourself just as you create the career path for your team members, hopefully, if you're you know focusing on the right things and developing talent. You've got to think about your own role as well. How do you want to see it unfold over the years ahead? Do you want to move to, you know, some some people will just want to sort of take a back seat once the revenue gets to a certain level. They don't want to be working full-time within the firm. They would love to be able to be out of the office a couple of days a week. 
you know, others just want to be in front of those clients every single day as, as much as they can. So these are the things that I, I just think that, you know, for any business, I don't think it matters which industry you're in, thinking about how your role in the firm ideally is going to evolve is important and, and oftentimes just completely overlooked. And that's perhaps why there is this dissatisfaction that they experienced because perhaps the expectations were not necessarily all that realistic. Well, and, and the thing that strikes me is this becomes an almost inevitable outcome for so many advisory firms is particularly that now that we've, we've kind of made this wholesale industry shift from commission-based routes to assets under management and, and not for all the other like conflict of interest sorts of discussions around around compensation models, but just the, the sheer reality that assets under management is a recurring revenue model. And we live in an industry where once clients go onto that model, you're just as struggling firms, like quote unquote bad firms that don't have the, the best service and capabilities, often still have 90 plus percent retention rates. Averages are closer to 95. Really good right. firms get to 97, 98%, which means like as long as you have any level of <laughs> marketing sales, business development capabilities, the firm just tends to grow and accumulate over time for a material number of years because you just don't lose that many clients. And so if you spend enough years doing this and you accumulate enough clients, it is basically inevitable that you will outgrow your individual capacity to serve all these clients. And so just it, it, you know, if you don't have a vision for where it's going, I can almost guarantee like it's going to happen to you if you're doing a pretty good job serving yeah. clients and they don't leave often and refer you occasionally and you do some things out in the marketplace to make it known that you have an advisory business and and work with clients, you know, whatever your sales, marketing, networking process is, we almost all eventually accumulate past that point. It can take anywhere from probably seven to 20 years, depending on the advisor mm. and how quick they grow. But everybody eventually compounds past that point. And if you didn't have a clear vision of what you were doing and where you're and where you're going, I think as you articulated it really well, if, if you don't have a sense of what your end game is as the advisor, you just kind of land in something and that often doesn't really turn out to be the ideal fit for you, which I think is what, what we see showing up in, in the well-being numbers. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. We've done a lot of research over the years. Previously as FA Insight, you know, we would conduct the people and pay study and we would always examine organizational design in a great deal of detail. It's one of the areas that we consulted in frequently and still consult in. And what we learned is that for many firms, there is an enormous opportunity to be planning more for the future around how the organizational structure will need to evolve with the creation of scale. Most firms don't think about it. They might just think, you know, three months ahead or six months ahead in terms of, well, maybe my next hire is going to be another client services associate or an associate advisor. But there's a great opportunity to think about, well, if I want to double revenue in the next three to four years, what does that look like on an annual basis? And based on that, how am I going to accommodate that growth and think through, just kind of map out year by year what that transition plan will look like? And then there are no surprises along the way. And, and within that, you can also think about, well, what is that going to mean for me exactly? How is that going to change the way 
I serve relationships? Will I need to perhaps transition some of my smaller clients at that point in time to an associate in order to to free me up to do some other things in the firm and so on? So it's completely overlooked by the majority of firms, but I think there's a lot of merit to just thinking about, well, we're going to try and grow this thing. I don't want surprises around structurally what I'm going to have to do along the way. So let's map it out well in advance. Again, just like a lot, kind of a lost opportunity for many businesses and probably a good way of managing expectations within the firm also. So can you, can you talk about that a little bit more? Like just how, how does that org chart at least typically evolve? I mean, I, I think we usually know where it begins. Like it's me. Then I usually get like an administrative assistant operations person. So I'm not doing as much paperwork and scheduling. Then I usually get a paraplanner so that right. I've, I've, I've got someone to help doing the, the planning stuff, the planning prep work, the meeting prep and follow-up. Then maybe I get an associate advisor as well if my paraplanner's moved up and, and, I'm, and I'm offloading maybe some of my smaller clients and working with them jointly. Then if I'm growing large enough, like maybe I get one more operations person because there's more client paperwork to do. By now, perhaps I work in a trader to handle the more of the investment stuff in trading. And I usually find like that that's about where firms start topping out in in kind of the classic like advisor founder centric model. Like it's a lead, one or two support planners, one or two support admin staff, maybe something someone helping on the investment end. Yeah. That's sort of this like four to six person team. You can manage that. It's a little crazy, but like you can you can manage that on top of your clients and yes. and then people start hitting a wall. And and just mathematically, if you're going to support that many people, you're probably about one to one and a half million of revenue, which again was was sort of that well-being sweet spot we found in our research. But but then you have to grow larger and things start changing sure. and breaking. So what what comes next? I mean, how, yeah. how does the, you know, if, if I think about like the firm that's going to go through the next doubling from there, they're going to go from one and one and a half million of revenue all, all the way suddenly up to two to three million of revenue. And now yeah. there's going to be 10 to 12 people. Like what comes next? Like how does that org chart start to change? Well, there are a number of different things that take place. And one of the kind of the easiest ways to figure out the evolution is to look at the data by firm stage and to pay really close attention to things like productivity metrics. So, for example, revenue per revenue generator, revenue per full-time equivalent, the ratio of revenue generating roles to non-revenue generating roles. All of these metrics can give you like extremely valuable input into those organizational structure decisions. So, for example, we know in the research that once you get to 750,000 in revenue, you've already at that point ideally recruited your associate advisor, somewhere between 500 and 750, your first associate advisor in all likelihood. Progressing towards a million dollars, adding an operations manager is always a really smart decision. Progressing towards $3 million towards there or at $3 million, it's when the, the, the COO position generally comes into play. Progressing towards $5 million, you've got a full-time CEO at that stage. And along the way, the advice team model typically deepens in capability. So we create, with scale, additional levels of advisory positions, and that builds a beautiful internal career path along that advisor ladder, if you like. And, you know, we, we start to 
kind of carve out more distinct accountabilities within the advice team. So more distinct accountability for brand new client acquisition, more distinct accountability for servicing certain types of relationships by complexity, if you like. And we create more and more specialization as we create scale. All of the capabilities deepen. Our management capabilities obviously have to deepen along the way. So the skills that got you to your $1 million firm are not going to be the same set of management skills that will get you to your $5 million firm. And so there's some basic principles, but so much of it can be guided by the data, although it's not an exact science, right? It's it's an art and a science. And depending on the service model that you have, that will also influence the kind of decisions that you make. But the data is a great thing to have in your back pocket to help you figure out what makes the most sense for your firm based on the revenue size that you're at now and what it is you're trying to accomplish over the next, say, three to five years. I think organisational transition planning, though, is probably best done over up to a three-year period only because it can become a little bit complicated. And I think you always want to be able to feel like that the planning that you're doing is grounded in some sense of reality and there aren't too many variables that could influence those decisions that would make it perhaps less tangible for you. So I kind of encourage firms firms to think in sort of like up to three-year increments, if you like, that sort of planning work. So you've mentioned a few times about coming at this from a data-driven perspective. And so I'd I'd love to hear more of just like what what are the data points that you think are 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 the things we should be paying attention to and and like just what are what are the numbers that we're that we're managing to? You know, you mentioned a few milestones there around revenue and just the 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 sheer stuff that tends to come from revenue, but you'd also mention things like revenue per revenue generating position, revenue per full-time employee. So can you talk yeah. a little bit about more about sure. those metrics? Like just what are they? What what numbers are quote unquote reasonable? What should I be expecting? How do sure. how do I think about this? So the the metrics that I mentioned that relate to organizational design are really productivity metrics. So if we look at revenue per revenue generator, let's first just sort of clarify. When I say revenue generator, we defined that at FA Insight in the research as every lead advisor, associate advisor, which is generally a servicing advisor, and any pure rainmakers or pure business development positions that you have within the firm. So have a think about like what is the headcount across those positions and take your total revenue and divide it by that headcount. Now, that number, of course, it varies from year to year and it varies by firm stage. So that's important to pay attention to. But as a median, we're generally like a really strong annual study year would be somewhere around the 540,000 say, in revenue per revenue generator as a median for all firms. But then if you were to look at the really big firms that we research, you know, perhaps those over $8 million in revenue, that number is dramatically higher. Revenue per revenue generator could be as a median, I think it's around the $920,000 per revenue generator. So the reason that that happens with scale is that as you build advice teams typically, and you create a system where our lead advisors and rainmakers and business developers have the ability to generate the opportunities, convert the opportunities, and then move lower value work typically down the organizational structure to roles that are 
more aligned and more appropriate to be doing, for example, servicing of lower and medium complexity clients, that frees up more and more capacity for more and more brand new client acquisition activity or growing the most valuable relationships of the firm. And so these are the sorts of changes that take place with scale. So revenue per revenue generator is an excellent one to pay attention to. Let me pause there just before yeah. you jump into the next one because I'm, sure. I'm, I'm just kind of I'm just trying to sort of process those numbers that it's like a, a median of $540,000 of revenue per revenue generator. I guess just to to make the language easy, like I, I'm just going to call this revenue per advisor. Sure. I guess sort of the asterisk that you had like lead advisors, servicing advisors, biz dev advisors, like we're, we're I, I think the point there, we're not necessarily including support pair planners, other support no, staff, no. even job titles notwithstanding, like this is the... Mm. You're responsible for revenue, keeping it or making it. Those advisors. So $540,000 of revenue per advisor. If I, just to make the math easy, I'll, I'll use my, you know, the, the proverbial 1% AUM fee rule of thumb. So this is essentially like every $50 million of client assets is another, is another advisor higher. If you're, mm. Is that sort of fair to think about? You know, if, if I'm at if I'm at sixty or seventy million and I have not hired a second advisor, I may be falling behind on this metric, which essentially means I'm 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 probably got more clients than I can handle. I'm not going to have as much time. That's going to make it harder for me to grow and do other things. Yeah, that, like, an, that's is that how we should think about that I think number? That's, that's a helpful way of thinking about it. But you know, it's one of those metrics where you don't ever want that number to get too high for your firm stage in terms of revenue stage, because like to your point, once it gets too high, it means we may maybe don't have capacity for growth. We we might look like we're shooting the lights out. We might, according to the benchmarking data, we look amazing, but actually perhaps we're seeing more client errors. Maybe we're seeing a decline in service standards. Maybe we just can't keep up with the growth of the firm. And oftentimes what we see is this correlates when it gets too high, you'll find that that growth is hindered and the time available for new client acquisition activity is is dramatically impacted. I've seen advisors that have struggled with this in in kind of more more indirect insidious ways. Advisor friend, we'll, we'll just say Rob for appropriate anonymity. Sure. Rob was a, a a very I guess overloaded advisor in this perspective. You know, he was I think approaching a hundred million as a as a solo, we had no support advisors. He was he was very very proud of of, of this. Like, look okay. at how leveraged okay. and, and and profitable the the practice is. But you know, like growth was really kind of slowing to a halt. And and I had said to him, like, just you, I know you serve your clients well, and you've grown really heavily through referrals. Like, are you really telling me that like the referrals stopped after all these years of driving all of these referrals? What's like what's going on? And, and what it came down to is, as we got deeper into the conversation was that he realized like he had no hustle to follow up when the referrals came yeah. along. He, he had gone from the early stages where it was like, I got a referral, woohoo, like excited, call them immediately. And he is now in stage of like, I got a referral. Oh right. God, right. I'm going to have to do another new plan. I have uh-huh. like. I have like seven reviews this week and 11 next week. I can't do another plan. This is going to kill me. Yeah. And so like he wasn't even thinking about it consciously, but subconsciously he had gone from, I'm so excited I got to another referral to a like, oh, 
another new client to deal with. Right. And so subconsciously, he was basically sandbagging the referrals. (laughs) Yep. Because he wasn't following up with them enthusiastically anymore, because he he was he was so far past that capacity mark and and hadn't really acknowledged and embraced that yet. It's a common story, and if you think about the implications of that happening more broadly across a firm, where you have a team of advisors and all of them feel a complete capacity crunch, they're at their limits in terms of the number of clients they can serve, and all of them are either delaying getting in front of prospects, not returning calls. It might be several months before they could see a new prospect. What is the impact on firm growth rates as a result of that kind of activity, that kind of behavior in the firm? You know, you, you wouldn't want to be a shareholder knowing that that is what's taking place. Yeah. So, so that becomes that first metric. And I guess obviously worth putting an asterisk on that. You know, if, if you're doing this because you serve a very high volume of, of smaller clients and, and, you know, and you've got 200 clients, you're probably going to feel differently about $540,000 of revenue right. than if you've got like a, a super focused clientele where you've got 20 clients that have two to $3 million each and you're doing 540000 of revenue off of 20 clients. Yeah, Although I, right. I will say like, because I've watched this play out as well, like it's, it's, it's amazing how consistent the revenue number holds, even between advisors that do this with fewer large clients and those that do it with a large number of of smaller clients. Because mm-hmm. in practice, if you have a large number of smaller clients, you don't you don't see them as often. Sure. So you got a little more time to have more of them. If you've got much bigger clients, you tend more to complex. do more for them and see them more often. Yeah. And so like the the number ends out being more consistent than you would expect between advisors with a few dozen and advisors with a few hundred clients because that's kind of the point like yes you can do a lot for some high value clients you can do a little less for a large number of low value clients but at some point a human being advisor can just only make so much revenue happen <laughs> be- before this gets difficult that's before right. you start running out of time yeah that's right the flip side of that metric so if if that number for a firm is coming in quite low below the median, according to the research, then, you know, the natural inclination might be to think, well, gosh, we've got capacity. Our advisors are not operating maybe in an efficient way. They're not doing their jobs in a productive way. And that could easily be true. But it could also be that perhaps they don't have always, maybe they don't have the, the capability, the, the know-how that we we would expect. And perhaps there's tra- there are training and development needs for those advisors maybe they need more support around them if they're if they don't have any support so there are there are so many levers like the, the metrics are not just you know there's it's not always straightforward to figure out what's going on you've got to look at your own circumstances and then apply the metrics and also consider benchmarking against yourself as opposed to just looking at the industry data because you really want to see what you're capable of year on year under a range of different market conditions also so, so I think that's worthwhile calling so, out. It's, you've, you've got to make mm-hmm. it useful to your own business. One more follow-up on this. I want to hear the, the next sure, metric, sure. which I think you said was revenue, revenue per full-time employee. Yeah. But it, is there like a typical number of clients this 540000 of revenue tends to represent? Because I, you know, most firms I find, well, right or wrong, we tend not to think as much about 
client capacity in a revenue perspective. We tend to think about client capacity in a client perspective. Like here's how many people relationships we can we can support. So yeah. if I like if we think about this in client terms, is there a is there a typical for the number of clients per advisor or clients that generate five hundred and forty thousand dollars of revenue that kind of fills this picture out? Yeah, look Again, firm by firm, that's really that's really going to vary. But you know, somewhere in the ballpark of sixty clients, if you were to look at the research, it's likely to fall around around that point. And over the years, that's come down some. It's come yeah. down because I yeah. yeah feel like the classic view would be we're we're getting all technology productivity enabled. Isn't that supposed to go up? Well. Perhaps, but it kind of depends on the nature of the relationships that firms are working with. And maybe as they move more up market in terms of dealing with larger clients, more complex clients over time, you know, the size of those relationships requires just right. a greater commitment of time and effort. So it's not always not always going to be the case. Yeah, so, so that's kind of a, I guess, a ballpark figure. But from firm to firm and even within a firm, I've just working with a business now in the Midwest and they have several advisory teams and between each advisory teams, the numbers vary dramatically. You know, if we might, you might have one advisor taking care of 150 clients and in another team, uh, they'd be lucky to have 30 clients, 50 clients. So, you know, I, I always encourage businesses to kind of work backwards when it comes to that question around client numbers. Like what is the right amount, number of clients? If you take the typical client for the firm, and you try and figure out, well, what does that client look like in terms of the complexity of their needs? And what are the number of hours approximately that an advisor would have to spend with that relationship? And how many support hours would that relationship need? Then we can back into what would be a reasonable volume of clients for any advisor to handle. Simple approach, but necessary because from firm to firm, those relationships vary so dramatically. Yeah. Well, right. It just if, if your average client is whatever three hundred thousand dollar household, which is you know lovely middle America, I guess technically upper middle America, like that. That's still a good client for a lot of advisors, particularly in the first first five to ten years. But just sixty clients with three hundred thousand dollars is you're talking more like a hundred eighty thousand to two hundred thousand of revenue, not five hundred and forty thousand of revenue. So just yeah. your your. Yeah. Your ability to get clients that have a higher revenue per client, whether that's assets per client or fee per client, if you're if you're fee for service, just that 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 revenue per client and how big of a client you can attract is still a feel like kind of an anchor point for this. Like if you're working with less affluent clients, just you're probably not getting to five hundred and forty thousand revenue per advisor. And if you're working with really really affluent clients, you probably should be higher than 540,000 right. of right. of yeah. revenue per advisor or you're you're you just don't have that many clients you could probably handle a little bit more. Yeah, that's right. I feel like the other thing worth noting for this just because you had said this is like this is not clients per founder or clients per lead advisor like this is everybody in the revenue generation yes. role. So, you that's know, this it. this might be 60 clients for an advisor, this might be 120 clients for a two advisor team. Maybe that's even a little bit more if they're not growing in their capacity. So like, okay, two advisors and a support person. I mean, I've seen teams like that that are doing 140 or 150 clients. They don't have much capacity. They basically don't grow much more than if they lose a client, they take one on. Mm -hmm. But by then you might be 
a million to a million and a half dollars of revenue on that team, even a little bit higher if the clients are are more affluent on average. And just that's it's a good team. Those are good numbers. Yeah, it's that's, a good number. That's good and, math. And again, that organizational transition plan is so important because as you're creating that scale, you're thinking to yourself, well, at what stage do we begin to transition relationships? Because we know mm-hmm. that we don't want to get to that capacity crisis. We don't want to cap out in terms of our growth capability. So when do we add the next associate advisor? When do we start moving medium complexity clients away from the lead and so forth? They're the questions you have to keep asking yourself in order to keep moving client relationships and revenue down the organizational structure. So if you think about it from that perspective, whether we're talking about this, like 60 clients is an average client per advisor, call it roughly half a million dollars of revenue as a median revenue per advisor. So if I'm an advisor that's that's growing and coming up on these numbers, when am I supposed to think about the next advisor hire? I mean, does this mean when I'm at 60-ish clients and or half million dollar revenue, that's when I'm supposed to be hiring? Does it mean like you can go a little beyond that, but if you go much beyond that, then you're going to start feeling, really feeling the squeeze? Or is that more like, no, no. So what that really means is by 50 clients or 400,000 of revenue, you should already be out there hiring because you have to stay ahead of the curve. Where should you be thinking about the next advisor hire if you you're know, if you're following this path? It's really different, again, for every firm. And one of the questions that you have to answer is, what is the expectation for any advisory role around the brand new client acquisition activities? Because if it's, let's say, two days a week have to be allocated, and that would be a lot, you know, according to the research, the, the median in terms of the amount of time that an advisor spends in business development activities is about 15% to 20%, depending on the study year. So it's, it's one day a week on business development. So what is the expectation for growth? And where is that growth coming from? If you're a firm that is really laser focused on accelerated revenue growth, then you're going to have to find ways to free up the capacity of your best revenue generators much sooner so that that they have time to start chasing opportunities and building networks and creating strategic partnerships, et cetera. But other firms will say, well, actually, our view is that we don't grow through brand new client acquisition. We grow through a very formal referral program, which means really serving existing clients really, really well. So who are the clients that generate the majority of the referrals and how do you then put your best people in front of those clients to make sure that that pipeline remains very healthy? Now, the reality is there just no every firm will, will have a different opinion about these things and much of that comes back to their culture. What's really important for, for them? What are they driving towards? And what makes sense in terms of the focus on on growth? And they're the sort of questions you have to answer as you think about structurally what do we need to look like as we create scale and at what point do I maybe as a lead advisor have to start transitioning relationships? You know, it may be in some firms that those those lead advisors who are the best at business development in the firm might only manage 30 relationships right? and spend the rest of their time focusing on generating new opportunities for the firm. So then tell us about the the next number that you had mentioned, which I think was revenue per full-time employee. Yeah, we call it revenue per full-time equivalent in the research, which is, is very much the same thing. So kind of functionally, just like revenue divided by my total staff. Total staff. Adjusting so for like, if you got a bunch of part-time contractors that adds up to one, you still count it as one. So exactly. full-time equivalents, <laughs> if you've got yes. some part-timers. 
Okay. Yes. And so in this number, all of your advisors are also included and any active owners within the business are included in this full-time equivalent calculation. Okay. And so the median in the research in the one of the more recent studies in 2019 was 228,000 in revenue per full-time equivalent. And that's again, that was a very healthy result in that study year. It again, it's one of those metrics that increases with scale. So for the largest firms, that number could be as much as sort of 350. In that study year, it was at 312,000. And again, it's it's because we are building teams which have, you know, kind of that ability to really push work down the structure. Once again, you've got to look at the positive and the negative side of, of you know, this result. So if you're really, really strong in this area, and I come across firms that might be at 350 plus in revenue per full-time equivalent, the question is always going to be, you know, are, are we experiencing some of the pain and strains that come with this kind of uh, capacity or lack of capacity? Are you going to be limited in terms of your ability to grow? Are you going to start experiencing challenges in the delivery of service to clients? Are we meeting our service expectations? Have we got an increase in errors, as an example? The other side of the coin is, well, if it's if it's too low, uh, does that mean that we're, we are just not a very productive business? Are we not using technology properly? Have we not trained and supervised our talent adequately and, and so forth? And those questions can only be answered once you kind of assess your metrics in combination with everything that's taken place in the firm. It's a fascinating number to me, this, this revenue per full-time employee. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just say revenue per staff just sure. rolls off the tongue a little easier, but you know, mental note for everyone, count count all your full-time equivalents, including adding up your part-timers to a full-time equivalent. You know, when, I, when we look at this revenue per staff number, one of the things that we found in the in the well-being study was that advisor well-being tended to dip at 250,000 of revenue, 500,000 of revenue, and 750,000 of revenue. Which is which is basically exactly where you are if you're getting over this number, but you haven't done your next hire yet. Yeah, and you start getting behind on your on your revenue per staff number. Whereas once firms push through that, there were huge lifts in in advisor well being at three hundred thousand of revenue, six hundred thousand of revenue, and nine hundred thousand of revenue, which is usually right on the other side of that hire, where. Now you have right, like you're at three hundred thousand of revenue. You've added a second person, but you have a ton of capacity because you added the second person. But you're nowhere near the top end of the revenue for that second yeah. person. Like just add the second person, so you get all this breathing room because you've got that's it. You got the new staff support, and they're not filled up yet. And just we we could see it really directly in the numbers that just firm owners tend to have troughs in in their well-being and how they're feeling about the business as they hit these thresholds and then get these big lifts when they finally do the the next hire and just they they come remarkably consistently at about $250,000 increments which is is, is where mm. you would be just on the other side of this line yeah or just viewed as a we use another end from the advisory firm owner like if you're coming up on 250,000 of revenue and you haven't hired like it's time. You're probably getting a little behind. I, I think that's fair. Yeah. And if you're coming up on five hundred thousand, you haven't done your second hire. You're probably coming up again, which blends very well with the five hundred thousand of revenue per advisor. So just the first hire at two hundred and fifty is the is the admin support. The second hire at five hundred thousand is the is the support advisor. And just like 
it's the same numbers you were talking about earlier lining up, right? By seven, 500 to 750, you're adding that associated visor. Yeah, that's by right. 250, you've already added your ops. By 750, you're probably adding another ops support. By a million, you got to add an ops manager because now there's four or five people. So there's a lot of stuff to deal with. And that's just right. that's that's what it takes to to scale a firm. But I, I find it's a powerful thing just for advisors if you start thinking, you know, just every 250,000 of revenue, I should probably be doing another hire. And if you divide your revenue by 250,000 and that number is higher than the current staff you've got, you're probably behind on your staffing. Yeah, probably behind. You know, it, it's very natural for these numbers to seesaw throughout the growth of the firm. You, you're going to see one year very strong metrics, the next year weaker, and and neither are necessarily a good or bad. You know, if your if your metrics are weaker relative or lower relative to your peer firms, well, that could be actually an awesome thing because maybe you've been really successful in hiring, and now you're ready to accommodate all the growth that you're anticipating. Of course. If you're not able to fill that capacity in short order, then you're going to start to see that drag on operating profit margins. But, you know, you've got to just take an honest look at really what's taking place at that time to figure out whether or not you're behind in hiring and that's going to soon create real problems or you've created capacity. Are you making sure that you are filling that capacity quickly enough or is this going to become a problem? So it's, it's kind of continually reassessing where things are at and making sure that you're making adjustments to ultimately drive the, the revenue growth you're seeking and, of course, get to the operating profit margin you're also seeking. So are, are these kind of the core two metrics? I mean, are the others that we, yeah. that we tend to look at or is this sort of like revenue per advisor, revenue per staff really our driver? If you just start thinking about like we're we're – we're hiring staff every roughly 250,000. We're hiring advisors roughly every 500,000, which just strikes me. That means like you, you basically end out alternating like staff advisor, staff That's advisor. It. So staff, the other staff advisor. <laughs> the other metric that is speaks to that point, Michael, is the non-revenue role to revenue role ratio. So that's taking a look at the number of positions that you have in the firm that include administration or support positions, dedicated managers or technical roles. So everybody who's not generating revenue in the business right. relative to the number of advisory positions or revenue roles. And so a, what should that ratio look like? I mean, we just kind of yeah. set it up as basically a one-to-one -one ratio. Like <laughs> you hire a staff, you hire an advisor, you hire a staff, you yeah. hire an advisor. So does right. it is that accurate and does it continue that way or does that ratio like change over time? It's very consistent for smaller firms. But the median's at 1.3 to 1. So 1.3 non-revenue okay. roll to 1 revenue roll. For smaller firms, those under, let's say, 4 million in revenue, the ratio is generally around 1 to 1. And it was that case a couple of years ago in the research. But as you grow beyond that, the ratios consistently year on year look different. It's, it's a 2 to 1 ratio for the biggest firms in the industry. So they're building deeper support teams around their advisors, which enables more work to move down the structure and, mm -hmm. again, that greater focus on brand new client acquisition work and conversion of prospects to clients. But I'm struck just 
how like how not far different that number is. It just if it if it's if it's one to one when firms are under four million of revenue and it gets up to one point three to one when firms get get larger. I mean, you're still talking like the only difference here is whether you hire like four ops for every four advisors or if you hire five ops for it's every actually, four it's advisors. It's actually two to one. Sorry, the one point three to one is the median for all firms. Okay. Yeah, and as you get to above eight million dollars in revenue, it changes to a two to one ratio. Okay. Okay. And, yes. And so that's so, okay. So that's the scalability effect yep. that starts showing up is as that's firms right. get get larger and get better at pushing tasks down, they can get more stuff off their advisor plate. And so now suddenly I've got I've got eight staff supporting four advisors instead of four staff supporting four advisors. That's exactly right. And so like what's I guess is what's shifting in practice that that number just like magically starts working where I can't get better than one to one when I'm under four million of revenue, but suddenly I'm at two to one when I'm over eight million of revenue. Like what, you know, I think what happened as, in that yeah. zone in between? <laughs> that sounds like a magical zone. <laughs> it it it's this progression towards advice team structures. So, you know, when we look at the way that firms are structured and the way that they're delivering advice across the developmental spectrum, in the earlier stages, they're simply, you know, we, we just just a few people working together and doing our best to deliver to clients. And then as you progress towards kind of that the 1.5 to 4 million band, we start to see the emergence of what we call ad hoc collaboration where you might start to operate in what kind of looks like a team, but in fact, we might have groups of advisors or teams that are kind of doing things in their own way, in a siloed way, where we're doing our own thing, actually. We don't necessarily, we haven't created efficiencies. We're not implementing best of breed processes. There's this sort of ad hoc way of getting work done and ad hoc collaboration between these kind of teams that we're, we're silos if you like that we're starting to emerge and then with more scale towards that eight million we certainly see defined advice teams the predominant model which means that we now have multiple levels of advisors and multiple levels of support personnel surrounding mm. those advisory positions that creates of course deeper deeper skills in in different areas and and that ability to keep pushing work down the structure and clearing the plates of all of your revenue generators so that they are put to their highest and best use at all times. And that is a key distinction. So then talk to us about the, I guess, the the, the next level of the scaling and building that goes above this, which you, which you mentioned earlier that moving towards 3 million of revenue, a full-time COO comes yeah. into play, moving towards 5 million, a full-time CEO comes into play. Just I, I will admit in practice, like I, I I feel like I very rarely see even dedicated COOs at three million of revenue. I really don't feel like I often see full-time CEOs and firms at at five million of revenue who are, you know, also just the the, the founder yeah. managing their hundred clients and their team and all their other stuff and wearing the CEO hats, like not not a full-time standalone position. So is that just because we like, do we mask this and do it in other ways? Or is that just like a broad-based sign that so many firms get behind in the in the in the hiring and scaling curve? Like, I think is that, that's exactly right. I think that, you know, I, I've met many firms over the years that can't quite figure out what that next move is. At three million is really an inflection point for many businesses. And 
generally there are multiple shareholders at that point in time and they know that something has to change but they don't quite know what it is and you know the temptation is to just kind of continue to try and manage the firm yourself but oftentimes at that at that stage the capabilities that are required to continue to grow the firm don't necessarily exist within the firm and so it opens the door to well we we probably have to look externally and and what is that position and i i think a lot of businesses really are not familiar with what that takes. But that COO role is that generalist management position who is obviously senior executive with very broad but deep management expertise in multiple areas that are necessary for the firm, areas like human capital management, operations and technology. You're going to be pretty good at compliance and so on. You're going to have a very broad skill set, but you're also going to be really, really clever in a number of areas. And in all likelihood, the right recruit for any given business has to come with a capability to fill a very significant gap. So, for example, at that stage, it's not unusual. And like we've talked about in your research, there is this drop-off in dissatisfaction. Advisors are now managing people more than what they perhaps thought they would ever want to or have to. It's not what they love. And so, for many firms, recruiting a COO that really is a gun when it comes to performance management, compensation planning, organizational design, all of these important things makes a whole lot of sense. You know, for others, it might be, well, we need someone who's really fantastic at operations and technology because that's our weakness. So you want to be thinking about, you know, yes, we need somebody who's got a wealth of knowledge across multiple areas of the business, but we probably have a need for one area to be stronger than some of the others. So just help me understand further, like, can you describe the job description of this, of this person? Because I'm, my gut is that when most advisors are thinking about this, they're like, they're thinking about their ops manager, but a little more. Uh And I think you're in practice talking about something that's a little bit different than that. Yeah. So can you just, can you describe further? It's like, what? What is this person's job description and how does this simply differ from my ops manager, who I find in most firms is the jack of all trades, handles a lot of different stuff, you know, is overseeing some ops stuff and some office stuff and some facility stuff and probably handles HR and benefits, which means they support on the employee reviews and often they're helping with billing and like they're they're already doing so many of these different things. So what's the difference between that? And, and what you're talking about here. Yes, yeah, so there's a pretty big distinction between the two positions. And that ops manager is more likely to come into play, as I mentioned, around that $1 million mark, perhaps a bit beyond that for many firms. But the key distinction is that the CEO role is a more strategic management position that is doing a lot of the design work at a very senior level, contributing to the firm's strategy, working with the CEO, and is accountable for the execution of strategy in support of the CEO. That is very different to an operations manager who no doubt does a wonderful job of managing a very long list of challenges within the firm, but they're not expected to contribute at a strategic level. They are handed tasks, they roll up their sleeves and they get it done. We're not having, for example, a, a COO position handling 
telephone-related issues in the office or when the printers break down. That's not what they're dealing with. But they are the ones, as an example from a technology perspective, they're thinking about how does our technology stack need to evolve in the next two or three years? What technologies are we investigating and piloting potentially? Where are we going to be? What are we going to be budgeting for our technology spend? How are we tracking the performance of our technology and the executional implementation? You know, they're very different levels of levels of responsibility. And you kind of carry that through that same level of skill through to every other, you know, function that you'd ask them. Like financial performance management and reporting would would be would fall under that COO position. Along with, of course, your your people related. So from a people perspective, they are the ones who are helping to design a compensation plan, building performance objectives that are aligned to the firm's strategy and conducting performance reviews with some of the most seasoned team members within the firm, as an example. Very different level of skill. So I was feeling like I'm, 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 I'm like channeling my, my like inner scaling business owner <laughs> thing now. It's like, so, so Eliza, where do you find this magical unicorn that does all of these wonderful things? <laughs> You know, over the years, it's always really interesting when you you get to work with COOs and and they're oftentimes front and centre in strategic planning meetings. And, you know, many of them have grown up in the industry and and developed skills over time in management. But it is kind of unusual. I have to say, again, if I look back at all of the consulting engagements I've I've done over the years, it is unusual for an operations manager to advance to a COO. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I have seen it more recently in one firm, actually here in Australia, but it doesn't happen very often because they are completely different skill sets. And unless you are a firm that's able to really focus on professional development and move that individual along, if that's if that's their career aspiration, you know, it's just not going to happen. So some firms will recruit COOs or poach them from other firms. They will look outside of the industry to find really great management capabilities. One firm, many, many years ago, they recruited an individual from the military who happened to have incredible leadership and management strengths that worked out beautifully for them. So I don't think you have to be limited to our industry. Hopefully, you're one of those firms that does a great job of developing talent internally and you can progress an individual but I think you have to look at a range of options. And just what am I, like, what am I vetting? I mean, just how, how do I figure out if this is the right COO, especially if I'm hiring outside of the industry, which means the one thing I would probably want to ask, which is like, hey, here's a problem we're dealing with in our firm. How would you, how would you handle this? And they won't have a good answer because they have no familiar with the industry and the systems that we use. So like, how, how do I even figure out if I've got the right person if I'm trying to interview these people? Like what's yeah. the what's the key to identifying them? Well, I think you always start with some of the, you know, the fundamentals around are they culturally aligned with our leadership team? Are they aligned with our growth aspirations? Are they people that is it somebody that, you know, that has a similar level of motivation and enthusiasm relative to the owners? I think that's incredibly important. Bearing in mind that it's not unusual for this position at some point to be raising their hand, wanting potentially to buy an ownership stake within the firm. So, you you know, this is a senior position that you want to retain for the long term. So, you want to be thinking well in advance, hey, 
Actually, we also want to know whether this person is going to be potentially a partner for us, you know, partner of the firm in the future. So you want to be always having that kind of that view in mind when you're as you're going through the process of interviewing. But there are, you know, six or so buckets of accountability and you want to understand what is your experience in leading in leading teams? What is your experience in building a compensation model or helping to develop performance objectives? What's your experience in executing on a strategic plan? If we build a strategy and we hand it to you, what's your experience in having in building an implementation plan off the back of it? You know, what evidence do you have of your ability to, to do those sorts of things? And, you know, the same applies across each of the areas of, of the management function that you would want them to really take a, a senior position in. You've got to feel ultimately comfortable. You've got to remember that partners will be handing over responsibility. Imagine handing over for the first time responsibility for the financial performance management of the firm. To yeah, it sounds, ter- it sounds terrifying. Terrifying, right? And so you may not even hand everything over at once, but you need to know that you're hiring somebody that you have the confidence in that will get there, that you will want to, to do that, to make that transition with so that you can focus on the things that you really want to be doing in the firm. What strikes me about this, just having seen a lot of advisors go go through this transition and just, I mean, for anyone who's listening to this and just trying to imagine like actually handing off that much responsibility for the thing that determines your financial future, like your 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 business, this ba- you know, this baby that you've you've birthed and, and created and raised up until this point and, and feel like it's just fundamentally kind of terrifying to <laughs> yeah. to like to hand off that much responsibility and just the risk and consequences to you if it goes wrong for better or worse what i've seen for for pretty much every advisor that's managed to get through that and and deal with that fear and and still make the hire and move forward is is just the fundamental recognition that if you're going to keep growing this literally has to happen I mean, yeah. if it doesn't, the, the business will break or, or usually you will break. And, and <laughs> I think, mo- I think right. most advisors don't do this transition, which is literally why we see, as you said, like this transition tends to come at $3 million of revenue and the unhappiest, lowest well-being advisors of everyone we measured are advisors over three and a half million of revenue. Yeah. They're lower than advisors who have no clients yet and are getting started from scratch for everyone who remembers how awful that was. Mm. Like this part gets worse and 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 the worst just I know is it's it's all the advisors that have not not been willing to do this higher and have tried to hold on to it, but the business keeps getting bigger, keeps getting more complex, and they've got clients and they've got new challenges they've never dealt with before. Yeah. And for most of us, right, all the things you said, like leading teams, building comp models, developing performance objectives and executing on a strategic plan, like nobody taught me to do that as an advisor. <laughs> like right, of I was course. at best I was taught to I was taught to get clients and and give them give them good advice and and give them good service so they they you know pay us for what we do and stick around and so we don't we don't have these competencies either which I think is why we see the well being so low like it it's really not pleasant to have the sole responsibility to do a thing you know you're not good at and haven't been sure. trained in and and don't have the capabilities for so just I, I mean to me for anyone who's struggling with thinking about how do you how do you do this like how do you get over the 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 fear if you want to grow the next level. And, and just the answer is because it is worse if you don't. That's right. It, like it's just, it's <laughs> it's worse if you don't. Really, your only other choice is you just stop 
growing. Like you just create a new rule that says every time we add a client, we get rid of a client. And you know, you could still yeah. grow your revenue a little. You could still grow your revenue a little because you you take on more affluent clients. You let go of your least affluent clients. Like you might make a little more money. You can even expand the profitability of the firm. But if you don't decide to stop stop the net addition of clients, you have to deal with this. So it's only the only real question is whether you're gonna try to find the hire to do this, or if you're just going to continuously inflict the pain on yourself, which <laughs> I can tell you empirically from the data is worse. <laughs> right. You, you got to decide if you're going to believe it for yourself, right? but I can tell you empirically it's worse. <laughs> in, in, in business, there are always trade-offs to be made, right? You can, you can make that call to just keep doing what you're doing, even if you're not loving it, but there is a massive trade-off for that. And yes, growth is one of those trade-offs. But the other trade-off, which is maybe even worse in some cases, is, well, what is the impact on everybody else in the team? Because capabilities will deepen with scale and they have to deepen in order for the firm to continue to evolve. If it's not evolving, what does that mean for our talent? Are they just going to get fed up? Are they going to you know, get sick of a business that's perhaps not growing and not providing more opportunities for the future? Or worse still, are they being managed by someone who doesn't really enjoy people management and doesn't put a whole lot of effort into it when the alternative would be to have somebody professional come in who loves loves dealing with people issues or technology issues and and so on and, and would run with, it with enthusiasm. Wouldn't it be cool to have someone who is actually excited to deal with the new comp model? Right. <laughs> and someone and the next really technology deployment. Yes. Yeah. Because someone out there loves it. Yeah, as you said. And like, someone so- who loves, you know, improving on processes and yeah. Coming up with new ways of doing things and reorganizing the structure, you know. So what is this cost? Like anchor my expectations. I mean, what what should I be expecting to pay for this position? Mm, well, that's a another one of those questions which, of course, varies dramatically by location in particular. And so there's a lot of benchmarking data available in the industry, which I encourage firms to tap into. I'll give you an indication based on the last of the, the people and pay studies that was conducted. But, I, you know, whenever I share data like this, it's really important just to to set the expectation that it changes dramatically based on your location. It might change dramatically based on the competency of any individual that you're trying to to recruit. But as a median, total compensation was at 164000 and at the upper quartile, 252000 and at the lower quartile, 116. Many factors would contribute to, to those numbers. So, you know, if you're if if you're a firm that's that's thinking about that recruit, you want to be really taking a close look at current compensation data for the industry and also thinking about what regional adjustments might need to be made to make it applicable to your firm. And you'd mentioned total compensation. So just that some combination of salary and bonus? Is this typically a position where I need to do equity as well and make them a shareholder? You you had mentioned equity at one point, but I'm not sure if that comes here or comes later. Like, What is the, what is this comp yeah. to look like in practice? That, that comp that I just described there is a combination of base salary and variable pay, very, like incentive compensation of some sort, okay. whether that be like a performance-based or a potentially just a bonus type incentive structure. And then, of course, the question of equity is entirely separate. But, you know, generally people of that level of seniority coming in in a management position are going to ask that question and 
they might even ask it in the interview process to understand what the, you know, the breadth of the opportunity really is. And I do think whether it's, you know, whether it's a really super talented COO or a super talented investment manager or, you know, an incredible associate advisor that's on the path to becoming a lead advisor, those equity conversations have to be had. And, you know, it's one of the great mistakes that I've seen over the years, even in some of the biggest firms, the most exceptional firms, when you learn about the way they have you know, developed an equity plan or not quite developed an equity plan that sits in alignment with the needs of the, the, the talent, it can create really huge challenges. And, you know, it's not until those issues are resolved that you, you can be sure that, that your best people are safe. And in a market like we're operating in right now where, you know, firms are growing really rapidly right now, there is an acute shortage of talent. The race for talent is just accelerated so much this year. Yep. that you've got to be able to to demonstrate to your team members that you want them there for the long term, that you value them enough and, and those where it makes sense to that you go to great lengths to be able to offer equity opportunities. So now talk to us about the next hire that you had mentioned, which is hiring the CEO at, call it, $5 million of revenue. Yeah. So... What is like? What does this role look like? How does this come together re- relative to where I guess basically every other firm is, which is I'm I'm the founder. I've been running it since day one, or maybe there's a couple of co-founders or or senior partners now, and yeah, we we have a committee of two or three or four of us that manage it, and we've kind of divvied up the duties because you know Bob's good at this and Sydney's good at that, yeah, and, and yeah. we and we and we you know we carve that stuff up because. Because we have to, because we're also managing clients and growing the business and doing all the other things. So talk to us about the the CEO position. Like what does it look like when you hire a CEO at 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 five million of of revenue? And I, I guess I'm you know, if I'm the founder, like am I allowed to do this or do I yeah. do I have to go hire someone else to do this? Well, you know, if you think hiring the COO is a challenge, hiring an external CEO is next level. Of course, and that's for that reason you don't see it very often. In that, going to the market to bring in an external CEO within an advisory firm, it's not common. That's for sure. And oftentimes, it will be one of the founders that progresses to that position over time. It's always a challenge, however, when you've got several shareholders within a business and maybe co-founders. Who's going to take the reins? And to your point, many of them will share that role for a period of time. And in some firms, that in some ways, that could work for some businesses. But I've seen several several instances where that does not work, and it doesn't work because, you know, over the course of time, decision making authority gets blurred. There are stalemates on the bigger issues within the business that need to be resolved, which results in kind of protracted decision making. And so on and so forth. Uh, and I think at some point, you know, for most firms, there is benefit in in appointing one individual to that position who has clear accountability for the for the growth of the firm. And and as it relates to what does what does that role look like? Well, it's very much driving and designing, driving the strategy of the business. And you won't necessarily build it all alone. You'll want your leadership team involved in those conversations, but you are accountable for building that 
that strategy and then ensuring the execution of that strategy. You're entirely accountable for the financial performance of, of the business. You're entirely accountable for building the profile of the firm within the community in which you're serving and 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 very much being a presence in the community that will, will support the continued growth of the firm. It's it's a a role that carries obviously all of the the, the final that's where that's where the buck stops. So and just ha- how do I get comfortable with that when I'm the <laughs> I'm the founder and it's still still my equity or primarily my my equity like just that's uh that's an immense portion of my personal net worth to have someone else run. Yeah. And look outside of our industry you know it happens frequently where founders will step aside and they'll bring in brand new capabilities that of course uh, you know very you know very broad and very deep experience but it's i think within our industry closely held businesses it's just such a tough call to make and that's why you don't see it you don't see it all that often but you have to again ask yourself it comes back to the same point previously michael with the the coo position is what is the cost of not doing it? You might like the idea of leading a firm, but if you really don't have that skill set to be able to grow the business from five million to ten million to twenty million, what does that mean for the future of the firm? It's a tough question to answer for most owners. So, for the firms that manage to do this, like what's, I mean, as you've noted, like most most firms don't, or or at least at this level, I, I see. I, I guess in practice, I, I often don't see firms getting to this level until often ten or twenty million of revenue. When when there's just a whole other level of complexity or things breaking if it's not going well for the for the firms that do this. Like, is there anything any anything unique or any commonalities you see as to who who does hire a CEO at at this stage and just actually does it or gets comfortable with it or gets over the hump of doing it? Look, I think that it's. It's all, it's all a bit all over the map if you were to look at, you know, I can only talk anecdotally because we don't have data that would speak to that. And so, you know, you're basing it on sort of individual experiences of, of firms. I do think that there is a lot to be said for the kind of impact that professional management can have on the growth trajectory and perhaps the aspirations, you know, we, we're only limited by our aspirations and we're limited by our capabilities. And I think that if you have an individual that brings about an entirely new skill set that looks at challenges in a very different way, it ultimately means that the trajectory of the firm could change quite dramatically. Because if you're bringing a brand new set of skills, to existing issues, you'd expect quite a different result. So, so the growth potential would certainly be something that you would expect would increase by bringing in those brand new capabilities. Because not only are you deepening the expertise, you're also increasing capacity. You know, in all likelihood, the firm founder is still going to be involved in some relationships and and dealing with issues that are not necessarily CEO-level responsibilities. It's very hard to kind of pull away entirely from that. So you can imagine the impact of somebody who has that really deep skill set but also is dedicated 100% with great enthusiasm to the success of the firm. And where do these people come from? Where are you (laughs) finding these? 
I mean, just uh, like, do I do I need to go hire a recruiting firm who's also going to charge me tens of thousands of dollars to help find this person? Like, am I just listing this on LinkedIn and Indeed.com and and getting <laughs> getting CEOs who apply? Like, just h- how do you even try to find a person like this? Yeah, it, it's certainly again. It, there's nothing easy about recruiting senior talent, executive level talent. It always comes with a greater risk, of course, relative to to other positions. Uh, you know, I think I think you've got to look at all of your your networks that you have available to you. And you know, oftentimes the businesses that do best at recruiting, whether it be CEO or COO level positions, are those that have over the course of time developed extensive networks within the industry and even built friendly competitors within the industry that they work with you know from time to time to share ideas and so forth it may very well be that this individual is is leading another business and doesn't want to be the one to keep seeing clients loves the leadership of the firm and wants to keep you know, wants to 100% focus on that work. And, and it could be, you know, certainly a driver for, for a potential merger or acquisition as an example. You know, you don't want, you don't want to take that possibility off the table. Mm. You merge with another firm that has someone that's more promising in their capability to do this and then have them run the joint endeavor. Quite possibly. There was a piece of research that I wrote for TD Ameritrade going back a couple of years ago called The Six Dimensions of Standout Performance, and we examined the characteristics of those the billion-dollar firms in the industry, the best performing, I should say, like the top, the top 25% by way of revenue growth and operating profit margin. And so we look across these six dimensions, and one of the, the dimensions where they absolutely stood out was this dimension of connectivity. And connectivity means their ability to build growth-producing partnerships within the industry and outside of the industry to be able to kind of plant seeds, build relationships that over time they kind of tend to. They don't necessarily know where they're going to, what they're going to result in. They might end Mm -hmm. up being a strategic partner or a great centre of influence or they might be your future CEO or COO. And I think there's a lot to be said for that kind of proactive outreach in the community and to keep doing that consistently year on year. And it's usually the founders that are really great at that stuff. And so that can be a wonderful source of, of brand new talent. And in fact, when I look again back at the years of consulting, oftentimes those firms that are growing most aggressively and consistently are those that have a founder that just loves that element of connectivity, that that outreach, that mm. active uh, building of relationships across the industry. In which case, I guess the sort of the point and the and the driver here is simply, you know, if if you're that founder that has the drive, that has the energy for the building, and you're just feeling stuck and mired down with all the businessy things that have to get run because the business is getting big because you're at five to ten plus million dollars of revenue, that it, that it's just the Imagine what it would be like if you actually had someone that you could trust and have confidence in where you could just hand this stuff to them and they would deal with it and it would get done at the level and quality that you want. Yeah. And just thinking yourself like, what, what's that worth to you? What's that worth to the business? 
And and what yeah, what does that mean in terms of the the future valuation of the firm? Because obviously, you know, what is the ultimate performance indicator for most shareholders? You know, they look at sure they look at revenue growth, they look at operating profit margin, but valuation is is for many the ultimate indicator. And what is the trade off that we're you know are we prepared to perhaps go through some discomfort now? and think very differently about the future leadership of the firm in order to drive the growth consistently to avoid a situation where we have a capacity crisis or a skills crisis and to be able to progress along that developmental spectrum year on year continuing to build revenue and to continuing to operate in a profitable way if you don't have the skills to do that what is what is the the cost to you of of not looking to bring in professional dedicated management and every firm's got to ask that question at some point and in that context of costs so like help me anchor my expectations again like what what is this cost what should i be expecting here well it it could be you know anywhere if i'm looking at the their data it could be anywhere from there's a medium around 267 up to almost 500,000 at the upper end, again, dramatically impacted by your location. You know, if you're in areas like New York and Connecticut or you're in San Francisco, it's a, it's a very expensive position, obviously, to, to recruit for, which you would right. expect, right? Right. Okay. They're never easy decisions to make, right? Yeah. And, well, and, and just- that's the point of business. Like none of it's, none of it's easy. It's, and I think anyone who tells you it's easy is just lying to you. It's tough. It's at every step of development, there are a new set of challenges that present themselves, and there is discomfort that owners will have to work through in order to continue to grow. It's just a case of whether or not they're prepared to put themselves through that. Well, and I'm I'm struck as well, just particularly when you're talking about this at the at the size that we've been suggesting here, like. When you're hiring at five million of revenue for this role, I mean you're you're literally talking about five to ten percent of total revenue just just into this position. Potentially, but you know, again, it will come down to the the individual candidate. And it may very well be. Like if you haven't appointed a CEO previously, you know, it may very well be that that you continue to manage that position part-time for for a while or have part-time resources committed to that position until you feel more confident. Maybe the number for, for a given business is $7 million before it becomes truly a full-time role. Every firm has to make that decision, you know, based on what is financially responsible, what, what is the need, what is the cost of delaying for us, and so forth. So with any expensive hire, there is that period of time where we are less profitable, until we gain traction, they are fully productive and they are delivering an increased rate of revenue growth to the firm and, and increased profit margins as a result. But it's that it's that seesaw effect again, right? We we hire, our expenses look worse this year. Yeah. But next year we should be, you know, looking hopefully looking great again. So share with us for for a few moments just your journey. We haven't really talked yet about like literally like what sure. what does Eliza do and how did Eliza end out at the point with all of this 
background and expertise in advising <laughs> firms on all of these issues? Well, it's it's been a longer journey that I care to acknowledge in terms of the number of years consulting. But, you know, I, I really grew up in the industry. I started originally in Australia working as a power planner. That was my first job out of university. And, you know, a few years later, I, I had an opportunity to join a very small consulting team in Western Australia here that did very, very similar work to what the practice management consulting team, research team were doing in at Moss Adams in, in the US. And as it happened, I had an opportunity through the course of my work to, to meet Mark DeBersion. This is several years ago. I'm talking 2005 now. And, okay. and, and Mark offered me a job to move out to Seattle and, and as a senior consultant with the Moss Group. So, you know, that was a, a huge leap of faith if you like to relocate to a different country and and yeah. but 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 the mo- mark, mark is very mark is very persuasive though i understand <laughs> well it was primarily because you know what an opportunity to be able to work alongside mark and yeah i was fortunate mm-hmm. enough to to be to accompany him on all of his engagements and you know i got that wonderful opportunity to sit there and listen to him and hear his advice to clients and i remember thinking at the time gosh He's so eloquent and comprehensive in every response. I felt very much like just I just have to sit there and listen right now because because he's got this covered well and truly. But it was a you know it was a wonderful learning experience and you know working in that Moss Adams consulting group was was just you know between the research capabilities and the consulting skills it was an excellent learning ground. It's continuing to build build new skills myself. And then of course the financial crisis hit at the end of. Oh wait, and that was a good time to travel to another continent on the other side of the world. <laughs> well, Moss decided at that point, of course, that they would they were bringing an end to their consulting for financial services. And at that stage, Dan Inveen and I were the two seniors on the team. The senior researcher and I was at that time the senior person in consulting, and we were asked to round out the engagements and kind of close out if you like the the work there and we kind of looked at each other and we thought hey you know what this is an opportunity what about if we think about starting our own research and consulting firm which again in hindsight you know in the darkest days of the financial crisis to start a business was you know a big call to make but but we were kind of enthusiastic and excited about the whole thing and so Dan and I decided to join forces and we founded, we co-founded together FA Insight, which was just a wonderful, wonderful experience where we conducted a wealth of research. Many of your listeners would be familiar with the FA Insight annual study of advisory firms and all of the research and white papers and guidebooks that were kind of written off the back of all of that wealth of data. And then, of course, we we utilize that data for consulting engagements and, of course, speaking engagements, which I always love doing. And we built a business that, over time, we you know that that database was highly valued, and we had built enough of a brand in the market that that our largest client at the time, which was TD Ameritrade in 2016, ultimately acquired FA Insight, and we we were folded into the great team at TD Ameritrade back in 2016. So that's a, you know that was a large part of the journey, and I, I, I stayed on with TD. They they 
had Dan and I, you know, play a role in continuing to develop the research on their behalf and consult to their clients and deliver workshops and programs. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience with the team at TD Ameritrade, just a fantastic group of people. And since then, of course, with with changes that have taken place at TD Ameritrade through the Schwab acquisition, I'm now Departo Consulting and, and back doing independent work as a as a consultant and and research as well. So really it's been a an incredible journey. And so like in practice today, what does Departo Consulting do and and what kinds of firms do you work with? So I know we've I mean, we've literally covered the gamut from like, I'm, I'm getting started as a, as a solo and I should probably be hiring my first admin staff member by 250,000 of revenue up to, you know, firms with many, many, many millions of dollars of revenue who are hiring COOs and CEOs and the like. So sure. what kinds of firms are you consulting with now and what, what are the areas that you're getting into in practice with them? Well, it's really a, a, it's kind of a, I want to say a 70-30 split in terms of work with institutional clients relative to individual advisory firms. I'll take on a small number of advisory firm clients each year, and they typically are firms that are managing over a billion dollars in assets. And, you know, their their challenges are not all that different in some ways relative to smaller firms, but of course they have more people and perhaps things look and feel more complex. But at the root of it all, some of the themes are very similar. There's always a lot of work to do in human capital management, helping them to build organizational structures that will carry them from, say, $2 billion in assets to, to $4 billion in assets and so on. How do the structures need to evolve to become more efficient, more productive, as well as aligned to their own unique culture how do we then compensate our talent as we start to evolve our organizational structure? What does a compensation plan need to look like? Career path planning and business succession are kind of all tied up in that work. I also do a lot of work in strategic growth planning, and I love working with shareholder groups who are, you know, wanting to reassess their growth plans. Maybe they had a plan and perhaps they've done really well in accomplishing it, but now they need to kind of stretch again for another three to five years and helping them to figure out well, what's that really going to look like. That's always really fun, fun work for me. And then, of course, there's the institutional work, which is also really great work to be doing. I love it. It's it's building programs that reach, you know, it's a one-to-many way of reaching advisors because obviously you can only have so much impact dealing one-on-one with firms. And I love the ability to write research and white papers and build analytical tools and then talk about those things and present at conferences and run workshops and so forth. So I like to maintain that mixture of, of projects. And, and, and I find very much that you've got to be really entrenched in individual firm work in order to really continually kind of have, have that source of great ideas that will feed into your research and your writing and vice versa. I, you know, I, the two of them just work together so beautifully. I think that it it really pays to be able to do all of these different types of work that kind of together provide you with more to draw upon. Having done this over the over the years, what do you find is the biggest gap that advisors just don't don't understand as they're building and scaling their own advisory businesses? Like, what is it that tends to blindside advisors the most in that process? What blindsides them? Well, 
you know, I keep coming back to human capital, but I really, I really do believe those businesses that don't pay adequate attention to their their people and the development of their talent and equity opportunities will ultimately keep stalling out as it relates to to their growth. And again, if we go back to like the race for talent that we're experiencing at the moment, those firms that have always paid attention to their employee value proposition, and I'm not just talking about kind of coming up with a bunch of ideas and talking about it, it's it's really truly about executing on and delivering value to team members. I think that those firms have put themselves in an amazing position now to be able to take advantage of what is a more difficult recruitment market, but also an ability to to kind of headhunt from other firms. You're either going to, you know, in my view, when it comes to talent in our industry, you're either going to eat or you're going to get eaten as an advisory firm. You're going to have your talent picked off one by one if you're not paying close attention to the delivery of value to your your team members. So what does that look like? Well, it looks like professional development opportunities and internal mentoring opportunities and equity plan participation, for example. These are the things that have to be taking place as we, you know, continue to see such a crunch on, you know, the supply of of great talent. So what was the low point in your own journey of navigating through the industry? Oh, gosh. Well, happily, I haven't had too many low points over the course of the years. I, I, maybe I've been really fortunate in that respect. I will say that I think, you know, as you're building a firm and as Dan and I were working together to build FA Insight, it's a really super exciting time when you're a startup, but it also comes with, you know, a lot of stress and you're dealing with issues for the very first time that you haven't had to have responsibility for dealing with before. You know, and there's probably, you know, I can think of one instance in particular as we were in the early years of building FA Insight where we had been asked to to pitch on a particular piece of work with what was a very large Wall Street institution. And, you know, it was a lengthy process as oftentimes these things are when you're dealing with financial institutions. You know, there's kind of a process, but this was particularly lengthy. And we had proposal after proposal and discussion after discussion and, you know, providing a range of possibilities. And, and it was like a six-month journey to get to that point where we went to the offices in downtown Manhattan and had a meeting with the, the heads of and making a long story short, you know, it was an incredibly important piece of work for us to, to try and win. And, and we were very quickly dismissed during that meeting and treated with somewhat, you know, I hate to use the word, but somewhat disrespectful way. And in a way that I think was, you know, very unfortunate given the amount of effort that you put forth as a as a as a small business owner building a business you really put your heart and soul into every engagement and every possible prospect opportunity and so i remember that distinct feeling after putting in so much effort and and having not won that piece of business and as it turns out you know nobody won that piece of business they ended up figuring out a way to try and piece together something themselves but dan and i left that meeting and just was we were so demoralized and you know we were, we were grabbed ourselves a cup of coffee and went and sat by the by the water in downtown manhattan and were just you know i feel like that was a that was a very tough experience to 
be treated in such a way after putting forth so much effort. And that was a truly a lesson. That's a that's a lesson in don't ever take this stuff personally. And you've got to move on quickly from these types of experiences. You cannot afford to dwell in any way. You've got to believe entirely in your abilities and continue to push forward and continue to do great work and never ever take it personally because you, you really can't afford to. It's 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 business and and everybody's taking care of their own business in the end of the day. So, you know, that that was a particularly low point, but I, I'm grateful to say that, you know, over the course of the years, I've had a wonderful journey and I don't really feel like there have been that many moments I can point to where I would feel like, you know, I, I would characterize it as a low point. So what do you know now that you wish you could go back and tell you from like 15 years ago as you were getting going as a a consultant in working with advisors on practice management issues. Ah, that whole concept of never taking things personally, I think is incredibly important. And advisors, advisors, business owners struggle with this also. And I see it all the time with clients where they might lose talent that they really thought was going to be around for a long time. And they're absolutely heartbroken when a key member of the team leaves and it's very very hard not to take it personally but we you know we have to expect that people are going to want to grow and move on and experience other things i think this whole concept of 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 really understanding that it's not always it's not about you and there are often so many other factors that come into individuals decisions that that it, you, you can't really afford to take things too seriously i think the other thing that i've that i've learned is that when a new prospect opportunity comes to you and they're very quick to move into an engagement and to to hurry up and sign up and get things moving, sometimes that brings about a whole bunch of challenges down the track because those are the business owners that haven't really thought through what is my role here, what am I getting myself into in terms of the, the implementation that has to take place off the back of this what are the, some of the, the bigger, harder decisions I'm going to be asked to make and some of the change I'm going to have to make and drive within the firm? You know, they're the businesses that will more likely struggle to see the full benefit of working with a consultant. I think where businesses are really thoughtful and they ask a lot of questions through the process and they think things through in a very methodical way, they're the ones that, that absolutely know what they're getting into and they have thought about. How are we going to, what is the resourcing required on our end to make sure we make the very most of the advice that you give us and that we implement in a really timely way? So that was kind of an interesting, an interesting observation over the years that, you know, sometimes it's a great thing, contrary to the, the story I told you earlier, where clients are or prospects are taking some time to really think through the details of it. That's a really healthy thing because you want them to make the most of the advice that you give them and actually be very successful in implementing the change. So what advice would you give to newer advisors, maybe get, getting started in the industry today and you know have the whole career still in front of them? Oh, gosh. It's probably a pretty long list. <sighs> you know, I would say that be super careful around who you recruit because when you're in a really small business, every individual within that team has the, the ability to, to have a huge impact. And 
there's nowhere to hide in a small business. So you need to be laser focused in what your hiring needs are, but also make sure that you are taking your time to really recruit the very best that you can at that stage in your development. You don't want to make mistakes that are going to kind of trip you up because you're going to rely so heavily on those early days in those couple of people that might be around you that you've got to make very smart choices as it relates to your your human capital. And I think be really deliberate. There's nothing to say, you know, I always get asked this question around, well, what is the right time to start thinking about developing a business strategy or the right time to think about what my organizational structure needs to look like? And I don't think it's ever too soon. I think go into it with the end game in mind, know what it is you're trying to accomplish for yourself, how you want your own role to evolve, the scale of the business which you're trying to build, and even think about, you know, what is that that exit plan even? You want to know what's really driving you to to start the business and, and to build the business. So I would say don't think you're ever too small to start thinking about things in you know a more strategic way and to be planning for the future because you can avoid a number of pitfalls by paying close attention to the the data in the industry and just planning ahead so that you're you're not making some of the mistakes that so many firms do as they as they grow and they they move through that kind of startup phase you know and beyond beyond kind of 501 million dollars in revenue so as as we wrap up this is a podcast about success and just one of one of the themes is is that even the word success means different things to different people and so you you've had this wonderful successful career journey yourself as a consultant but i'm wondering how how do you define success for yourself at this point it's a really good question professionally i can answer that question in terms of what what success would look like to me or what i what i believe the success is for me I truly do really love the work that I do and it's important for me that I continue to work on engagements that do ensure that I'm growing as I'm as I'm working and you know continuing to have that that professional growth but I have to say when I get on projects that I can completely immerse myself in and work in a very focused manner without distraction i guess it's it's kind of what you call a state of flow where you have this truly energized focus and you get to work on something that's so interesting you know i i really just get such a kick out of it so when i can do work like that where it's challenging and interesting and you come up with something that combines data with creativity and bring those things together to produce something for a client that they're really happy with, you know, that's incredibly important for me. It's 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 about doing great work and making sure my clients are, are hopefully delighted with the outcome. When I get those comments from clients from time to time, they stick with me. They're meaningful to me because I really, it does make me feel like I am accomplishing a level of success when I feel like my clients are saying things to me that to recognize that, you know, that they're better off for the work that we've done together. You know, that's super important to me. So I don't know if that's if that gives you a clear answer, but it's yeah. that's what I what I can give you today. That's definitely yeah. the things that are important to me. And, and does it differ at a personal level? I mean, do you kind of frame that professionally? <laughs> yeah. 
Well, personally, it's all about getting the balance right because I do think there's a tendency when you love what you do and you're focused on it to to have a bit of tunnel vision at times and that's that's not always a healthy place to be at. So making sure that I maintain that wonderful balance of family time and time with friends and in particular, you know, I love to focus on a very dedicated to my exercise regime and and keeping physically and mentally healthy. That's kind of the best that I can hope for in life, to be frank with you. You know, if those things are all in balance, I'm a pretty happy lady at that stage. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Eliza, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.